point? My name's Matt. I am the, the proud Matt that JC referred to. I'm the team leader here at Victory Point. Glad that didn't break, so I'm hoping I can return it when it's all done. <laughs> when I originally started speaking to JC about, uh, man, we'd love to hear some overflow from your experience. Like, I, I remember saying, like, you want to just preach? Like, you want to just bring the message? No, no, I don't want to do that. Then she did it. Then she did it. That, you, you brought the word. Wisely, as I was thinking about this morning and thinking about as I started to get a feel for what I wanted to share, I wisely, intuitively, I think, started to um, prepare for a two-part message, you know, to overflow into next week, because I think I know my daughter, and she is a gifted communicator, when it, especially when it comes to the things of the Lord, and I knew once we put a microphone in her hand, I might, it might be done. So um, I'm just going to share a little bit of my message today, and then I invite you to come back next Sunday and we'll continue it, okay? So I just want to set up a central story this morning, and then uh, next week we'll begin to unpack that story and actually apply that story in um, some fresh ways. So, so what I have there, that, that's a 25-pound bag of flour from Gordon Food Services, um, and I, I hope uh, by the time we leave here today, it'll make sense why I have so much flour with me here this morning. Um, so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, uh, if you'd like to have a Bible to hold on to, there's some back there, or I know some of you like to use a Bible app. Um, but find Genesis 18. If you're fairly new to the scriptures, it's really easy to find. It's the very first book in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 18, like JC referred to, we're in this series uh, this summer so far. We're calling it Kairos. And uh, just by way of a quick explanation, if you've never heard that word before, Kairos is a Greek word for time. The Greeks like to have multiple words, you know, for the same word. And uh, Kairos is one of the words that the Greeks have for the word what we call time. We think of time mostly by the most familiar Greek word chronos or chronological. That's how we tend to think of time. We chronologically move through life, you know. But kairos is a, is a word that the Greeks use to describe a very specific moment in time. Like, like, a, like you're moving along on your chronological time and then bam, like something happens. That, that's a kairos moment. Jesus actually uses this word in Mark chapter 1 when he begins his public ministry with this declaration. He says, the time has come the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The word for time that Jesus uses is kairos. Kairos is this moment, this breakthrough in time. Jesus is saying there's something happening in humanity. There's, he's breaking through. The kingdom of God is breaking through. And, and when the kingdom of God breaks through, because it's always breaking through, the proper response is to repent and believe. Okay, so what we're doing this summer is we're just asking whoever's up front sharing to share like out of the overflow of, of how God's been getting your attention. The kairos is that thing that gets your attention in some profound way. And your job then when you have a kairos moment is to pause and reflect and discern what's God saying to me in this moment and what am I going to do about it? The, the, the very lifestyle that, that JC, you know, was talking about. And um, JC, your church family, we're, we're really proud of, of the way you're living your life. Just like we're proud of the way everybody here in these seats is waking up each morning with a yes posture in their heart and in their spirit, saying, God, 
what are we doing today? What do you, what do you want to teach me today? Who do I need to talk to today? Lord, what are you saying? Because I'm going to respond to whatever it is you're saying today. That, that, we're, we're, that's the kind of lifestyle we're seeking to live. So I've been reading um, through the book of Genesis over the last few weeks. And there's this story in Genesis 18 that has really gotten my attention. That I would say is, is in, a, in a kairos way. It, like it, it's getting my attention and causing me to pause. And I want to just unpack that a little bit with you this morning. It's in Genesis 18. And I'm going to begin uh, at the very beginning in verse 1 and read the first 15 verses. The reference will be on the screen, but not all the verses will be. Because so, I just want you to just listen to it. I mean, isn't that the, 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 the power of these stories? Is just, just listen to it. Even if you've heard this story before, there's something new God wants to get your attention with, I'm convinced, this morning. So pay attention for that and listen for that. In, in the NIV, this section is titled, The Three Visitors. It's a story of Abraham. It says this, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Marm while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and he bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So listen to this. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. That's his wife. Quick, he said. Get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it with a K. Knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and he gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and some milk in the calf that had been prepared and he set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening. She's eavesdropping. She was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed. She laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, talking about Abraham, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. That's the story. That's the story we're going to hang out in this morning. You have Abraham. It's like 99 years old, okay? Abraham is sitting in the doorway of his tent in the heat of the day, hoping to just grab some shade, maybe catch a breeze, you know, as it comes by. And he looks up, looks in the distance, sees three strangers. What would you do? What would you do? What would be your reaction? Would it be like, man, I hope they keep going. I hope they just keep going wherever they're going and don't bother me because it's hot out and I'm sitting here in the shade catching a breeze. I hope they keep going. What did Abraham do? 
the text says that Abraham hurried. He hurried to meet them. He, he ran to them and he bowed down before them. Now let's just pause right there. I mean, to us today, you know, in our culture, in our time, that doesn't, you know, what's the big deal? Abraham ran to them. Actually, three times in this story, if you listened, it says that Abraham either ran or hurried. It uses those two words. He either ran or hurried, you know, in his response to these three strangers. And we're like, okay, so he, he's a runner. It, what's the deal? What's the big deal? It's a, it's a very big deal. It's a very big deal in that culture, in ancient culture at that time. Patriarchs, like the, the, the patriarch of a family does not run. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago when we were looking at the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. I mean, it shows up in that story too. The father ran. That is such an unusual and... Um, like, it's a no-no, really. It, it, it's something that didn't happen in that culture. Family patriarchs don't run. It, it was so serious. I mean, to do so, and I don't understand all the specifics why, but to do so at that time would have brought shame on him. It would have brought shame on his family. It would even bring shame on his village. Like, very intense, serious shame patriarchs don't run. There would have to be a very good reason to run. I, I was with uh, Ray Vanderlaan last summer, you know, on, on a trip to Israel. And I don't know if, I don't remember if it was on that trip or in conversation with my son Reese on his trip. Um, but uh, we were talking about that. I was talking about with Reese this week and, and he reminded me that, uh, you know, RVL, which we affectionately call him, like has spent so much time in the Holy Land and has built so many great relationships with people there like, one time wanted to ask, like, the patriarch of this Bedouin shepherd family, like, why patriarchs don't run? But he was so nervous about even asking the question. Because even asking the question would bring shame still, you know, to some in that culture today. And uh, so the, the patriarch's sons, you know, helped him kind of ask the question in a, in a respectful way. And he thought about it for a while. And I, and I think it went something like, I would run if there was a white scorpion about to sting my granddaughter. You know, like, like, there has to be a very, very extreme good reason to run. But yet, in this story, three times, Abraham is running around. Plus, I know we got kids in the room in the summer, but if you look back one chapter, Abraham just had a male procedure done, you know, to him as a sign of the covenant. Things that usually happen to babies in the hospital, to male baby boys in the hospital, but Abraham had just had a, a procedure done at 99 years old, and then in the next chapter, he's running around. He, he's running around. There's something significant about Abraham's response in this story. He runs, he runs, he hurries to these strangers. Let me get you some water. I'm gonna, we're going to make sure your feet get washed. Obviously, some water to drink as well. And let me get you some food. That way you can be refreshed before you go on your way. All right, they say. So, Abraham hurries to the tent, and he tells his wife, Sarah, quick, make some bread. Then he runs to the herd. I, how far away is the herd, do you think? I mean, I don't know, this could have been a distance, but he, he, he runs. He runs to the herd, and he tells them to select the choicest tender calf, the delicious calf. You know, find that calf and prepare it. Now, that's significant, too, because, again, in that culture, like a Bedouin shepherding culture, you know, that takes care of livestock, you rarely ate fresh meat. 
I mean, that was a rarity. You might eat fresh meat two or three times a year and only on very special occasions. But Abraham runs to the herd, chooses the choicest calf and asks you know, his servant to prepare it. And then um, he, he gathers up you know, some appetizers, some curds and some milk and he takes this, this calf and he brings it to, to his visitors and then he kind of steps back you know, while they eat. And it doesn't even mention, you know, like, like them eating the bread. And I, and I started to wonder about that. Like, what, what, why is the bread catching my attention in this story? So I want to go back to the bread real, real quickly. Abraham goes to Sarah and tells, sort of asks, but yet sort of tells Sarah to make some bread. Now, that's a very common gesture. That's a very ordinary thing to do in that culture when guests show up. Hey, let, let's, let's make some bread. Let's have some fresh bread. But did you catch how much bread Abraham asked, sort of told Sarah to make? I mean, did, did you catch that? We, we probably didn't because it's, it's different sort of measurements for us. In the NIV, it says to take three sias, which if you look in the footnote, you know, is the equivalent probably of 36 pounds. He tells Sarah, why don't you take 36 pounds of the finest flour, not... You know, the, the, the best flour, the wheat flour, not the barley flour, the ordinary flour that everyone uses. Get the best flour, the, the wheat flour. Get 36 pounds of that flour and start kneading it together into some dough and bake some bread for our guests. Nothing but the best so far, right, for, for these guests. Now, this, this bag that I have with me today is 25 pounds, so we would need like another half bag plus that. Can you imagine like, like taking that much flour and, and starting to knead it together to make bread? So I was curious. So I wanted to know how much bread will that, will 36 pounds of flour make? So I asked Siri. I, I asked Siri, no help. So then I asked Alexa, no help. So I had to go like do the work of typing in a Google search and, you know, do all that. And uh, this is what I found out. I learned that the average loaf of bread takes about one pound of flour to make. So I, I guess we could say and guess that 36 pounds of flour would probably make about 36 loaves of bread. That's a lot of bread. That's, that's a lot of bread. I mean, how long would it take to make that much bread? I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that's why the scriptures really don't say they, they ate the bread. Maybe because she's still making the bread. Or, or maybe they ate like the first loaves that came out. Or maybe there was a miracle. That happens, right, with, with food and stories in the scripture. Maybe there was some sort of miracle that took place. Some, but, but here, even take it farther. Some scholars that I read suggest that actually it was probably more than 36 pounds. It was probably more than 36 pounds. One of the, one of, you know, one of the translations could read instead of three sayas, it could mean three measures of flour, which could imply upwards to 60 pounds. It could have even been upwards to 60 pounds of, like two of these bags plus a little bit more, just make some bread, make like 60 loaves of bread. But it really doesn't matter whether it was 36 loaves or 60 loaves. It was for three strangers. It was for three strangers who, who showed up unexpectedly. Why is this story in the Bible? Why do we get those sorts of details? Why is that relevant? Why is that important? What's God trying to show us? What's God trying to teach us in this story? Could it be as simple as this? It's important to God how we welcome strangers. 
Maybe it's just as simple as that. It's important to God how we welcome and we receive strangers. Now we know, because we know this story and we've read the whole, you know, we read it, you know, all 15 verses and and even beyond possibly. We know that these three strangers were actually God and two angels. Probably Jesus. Like Jesus making an appearance possibly in the Old Testament along with two angels showing up to Abraham's house, his tent. Now we also know that Abraham eventually figures this out. He eventually figures out who these guys are. But remember, we got to always remember this in the scriptures because we have the advantage of having this in a book form where we can read these stories. They're living this out in real time. He's walking through this story, this, this moment, this situation in real time. You know, when did Abraham know who these guys were? I don't think we know. And I think we could safely assume that Abraham maybe didn't know who they were at the beginning of the story. That Abraham's actions, see, I I think the risk is we assume like, oh, well, this is a story of how you treat special people when they come over. I'm not so sure Abraham knew these were special people when they showed up. Maybe this is a story of this is just how you treat people. This is a story of just how you treat people, how you treat and welcome everyone. I think that's why this story And these details are in the Bible. It's a picture of how God wants us to be. And I think, as I think about that, that's maybe why God chose Abraham to enter into covenant with. And and to begin a family through. And a nation. And a people. Because this is how Abraham is just in life. He, He blesses people. He extravagantly welcomes people and is generous to people. That's the kind of person God can work with. That's the kind of person God says, man, I'm going to bless you, and through you, we're going to bless the world. Because that's the kind of person Abraham was. Abraham goes above and beyond. Because I think in some way he understood that that's how God treated him. That's how God acted towards him. God went above and beyond in welcoming and receiving and loving him. This is a story of extravagant generosity in a story of radical hospitality. And hospitality is what I want to talk about. I'm just going to kind of leave us kind of there today. But next Sunday, we're going to really like dive into what does it mean to be hospitable, to be a hospitable people. It's way more and bigger than just being friendly. So, so over the, the rest of our time, like right now and, and into next week, I just want to get to the heart of it, what it is, why it's important, and then really especially next week, like how do we live this way? How do we do that today in our world? How do we, we live like that? So I'll just leave us with this as sort of an a ending point today and, and a, a pickup point for next Sunday. This is the definition of hospitality because that's going to be what we talk about next week. That's what I think this story teaches us and is all about. Hospitality comes from the, these two Greek words that get squished together, and it's philoxenos, philoxenos. In philoxenos, here's what it means. It's the breakdown of two Greek words. Remember I talked about how the Greeks love to have multiple words for the same words? So they have lots of words for love, okay? One of the words they have for love is philos, philos. 
It means friendship. You know, it's that kind of love, like friendship love, like brotherly love, to, to love like a brother. That's where, you know, Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love, that, that's where that comes from. And then xenos means stranger or immigrant, okay? Biblical hospitality is loving strangers like you would your own brother. That's the definition of biblical hospitality. It's way more than just being nice to people. It's got more to it than just being friendly. At the core, biblical hospitality is about welcoming the stranger. You could see how this is really relevant, right? This is really relevant, you know, not just in Genesis 18. This is really relevant today. This is really relevant for our families, for our community, for our nation, for this world. This is the heart of God. Hospitality, I'll leave us with with this kind of definition. Hospitality is a willingness. It's, It's a willingness and an action, but it's a willingness to not only welcome people into our lives, but to also share with them. To share with them what God has given us. This includes, but is not limited to, sharing our time, our friends, our family, our finances, our resources in our homes. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about how do we do that? What does that look like in everyday life? Where do you experience that? How do you extend that? And how do you extend that not just to other Christians, but to other people? You know, not just in the ch- Hospitality has an expression and a dimension in the church, but also and especially outside the church. And, and when, I'm going to invite the band forward. I'm just going to sing one more song. Um, here's the thing I want to leave us with. A, a thought I want us to, to kind of sit on as we move out of here. Hospitality is important to God. Hospitality is even at the very core of God's character in Jesus' life. God is hospitable toward us. He's hospitable toward us. He, he is, while we were yet sinners, while we were still strangers, while we were still in darkness, he welcomed us into his family through the person of Jesus Christ. He befriended us. And he shares with us all that he has. And he expects us, as those who say we follow him, and those who seek to reflect him and live like him and lead like him, to be likewise and to do likewise. I want to suggest to us that hospitality is more and bigger than, than just a rule or an expectation or a command in the scripture. It, it, it's, it's maybe even so much as it's God's system of showing the world what he is like. It's God's way of of showing those around us his heart for them. And when we take it seriously, they get to see what our God is like. And when we don't take it seriously, that's a bad witness. So what does it look like to be people of of radical hospitality what's it look like to be people of of generosity so we're going to really get practical about next week so why don't you stand let me pray for us
Lord, thank you for this little story in the Old Testament that on the surface just seems like a, yeah, just a story. But when you start to reflect on it, it has so much significance and implications for us. We want to be like Abraham who was trying really hard, I think, to be like God. So Lord, even as we walk out of here today with just this little taster and teaser, this little idea sparking, I pray that you will open our eyes today, tomorrow, each and every day to the opportunities we have around us to be welcoming, to be generous, to be inviting, to be inclusive, to be uh, just extravagantly hospitable. Because we know when we do that, we are being an accurate picture of the one whose name we follow. So may it be so. In Jesus' name, Lord, may, may, may our love for others show the world the love of God. And Lord, we look forward to gathering next week and, and really getting excited about how we can do that in everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this one more song.